my brain played that short film of what it would look like to take my own life every second of every day for four months straight. Every morning I woke up, I was disappointed to see the light of a new day. I had to make it stop. That's when I started to plan how I would kill myself. Hello, this is Al Levin, the creator and host of The Depression Files. I wanted to share with you a new way to support the show. Let's just say it's as easy as buying a cup of coffee. If you enjoy the podcast and have found value in the show, please consider buying me a cup of coffee. Check out the site buymeacoffee.com slash Levin. There, you'll have the option of buying me a one-time cup or cups of coffee or to become a member in order to purchase me some coffee monthly. Your support will help me to not only get caffeinated up, but also to offset the cost of the podcast hosting site, maintain and update my equipment, and support the amount of time that it takes in order to produce the show. Again, you can find the site at buymeacupofcoffee.com slash Alvin, A-L-L-E-V-I-N. It's easy to do and would really help me out greatly. Finally, another way to help me out would be to take just a minute to rate and review the show. This really helps others to be able to discover the show. Thank you for considering to support me in these ways. And now, to the show. Welcome to The Depression Files, an interview format show in which you'll hear stories of men who have struggled with depression and or other mental illnesses. In addition, you'll hear deep dive conversations with guest experts on various topics related to mental health, topics such as depression and other mental illnesses, medication, suicide awareness and prevention, our current mental health system, and of course, the stigma that surrounds mental illnesses. I believe that both sharing stories and educating people are ways to chip away at the stigma. I'm your host, Al Levin, and I want to thank you for tuning in. Let's get started. Hello and welcome to The Depression Files. This is Al Levin, your host. I'm really excited today on the line we've got Craig Stanland. Craig is a former account manager of a large tech company and now a reinvention architect. Craig, welcome to the show. Al, thank you so much for having me. I'm really looking forward to our conversation. Yeah, me too. Absolutely. You have quite a story. Um, and, uh, and, you know, as far as I'm aware, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, but it seems like a great place to start is you were really living the high life. I mean, you had a fantastic job. It sounds like you had plenty of, you had multiple properties you were owning, you were married. Um, and it's, tell us about kind of the high point of your career and how that was going and what you were doing. So that is a that's a great place to start. So I'm going to bring us back to uh, September 30th, 2013. So on September 30th, 2013, I did have the the high paying job with the fancy title for a large technology company dealing with some of the largest financial institutions in the world. I had the BMWs. I had the five figure watches. I owned four properties. I was married, as you said. I had VIP status at some of the finest restaurants in Greenwich, Connecticut. And if you're not familiar with Greenwich, it's one of the wealthiest towns um, in the country. You know, I'd walk in and they would just immediately recognize me, put me at the best table. I had what everybody would say was it all. 
tell us more about that lifestyle in itself, like walking into the fanciest restaurant, people know you, you're probably getting a beautiful seat. What are some other things that, that you can think of that come back to you as leading that high life, that really, really wealthy life that stand out to you, just so we get a, a sense of the style you were living? So I had a watch guy. I had a guy who specifically got me my watches and I went in, I had some of the watches that I would buy, um, they would have about a two year wait list on them. And so I'd get the phone call and I'd be very excited and I would go see Scott at my jeweler to go get the watch. And I remember this one time when he was getting the watch from the back and he said, oh, do you want to see something really fun? And I said, absolutely. You know, and he hands me my phone and says, before you go through the pictures, let me just explain this. He goes, I have another client of mine who's also into watches and I met him at his job and he had to, um, he wanted to take me into like the back room, but I had my son with me. And so he said, you know, what am I going to do with my son while we're doing business? He goes, no, don't worry about it. He goes, my girlfriend, um, or actually I think it was wife. She'll, she'll, uh, watch him. You know, the kid's about eight, nine years old, give or take. And he hands me the phone. And it's Tom Brady and Giselle Bunchen, and the little kid is hanging out with Giselle and all of her supermodel friends in the locker room. <laughs> oh, my God. So my watch guy was also Tom Brady's watch guy. Oh, my God. That is funny. Wow. So you had your own watch guy. I had my own watch guy. So uh, and, and family life was good. You, had, you said you had a wife. I didn't realize you had at least one kid. How many kids? Oh, no, I'm sorry. That was... um my watch guy's kid that oh, Giselle gotcha. was going to, um, to gotcha. watch. Okay. And he, you should, by the way, you should have seen the pictures of him in the locker room. You've never seen a smile that big with him with <laughs> three Victoria's Secret models behind him in the, you know, the Patriots locker room. It oh was really God. quite something. I, 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 I have no children. Okay. So family life was good. You know, I mean, we were living this extravagant lifestyle. We were to kind of go into it a little bit further. You know, we would, go up and down Greenwich Avenue, which is the Rodeo Drive of the East Coast. And we'd be popping into all the restaurants, having, you know, a champagne here, a wine there, going into Saks Fifth Avenue, buying some Christian Louis Vuitton, some Jimmy Choo's, you know, basically whatever she wanted. And just wow. eating and eating and drinking and shopping our way up and down the avenue. And this was something that we would do on a very regular basis. Wow. Wow. And work was going obviously really well. Things were pretty smooth and like with your boss, your clients. So this is a very interesting question. Work was going well. It had started to turn a little bit. The products that I was selling were becoming more and more commoditized. So the margins on my deals were shrinking. So my paychecks were shrinking. Okay. And like, like at an incredible amount, like something that you were super worried about? Something I was extremely, extremely worried about. It was threatening my lifestyle and my lifestyle had become my identity. And right. so now my identity is becoming threatened. Right, right. And and can you give us a sense of like how drastic of a cut you were seeing in, in the money you were making? I would say that it was over six figures that it was that I lost. Wow. Yeah. Wow. It was over six figures that I that I lost. Yeah. Um, because of that. And it should also bear noting when I just told you I was walking up and down Greenwich Avenue, I was doing that on a Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, and a Friday, not just on the weekend, like right. you know, quite unquote normal people would do. So when I should, should have been servicing 
these giant, large financial institutions that deserve and demand attention. I wasn't. I was slacking off. So my paychecks were falling because of that. But I was so caught up in this lifestyle and wanting to, you know, keep the bar raised so high. Yeah. You know, and, and honestly, there was there were so many factors going on there. There was just the idea that I had, you know, I wasn't worthy of my wife. I wasn't right. actually worthy of my success. I never felt like I was enough. And so I was really trying to fill those that gap, that hole inside of me with all of that materialism, with all of that status and prestige. How, how were you to, able to keep keep such high-level clients and stuff happy while you were living the high life and slacking off? They, I was able to keep them happy, but they were starting to, they were starting to look other places. Okay. They were okay. starting to look other places and it was, you know, becoming a real, a real issue. And here I was, you know, a former one, two or three ranked salesperson in the company. And now I'm, I'm not even in the top 10. Right. Right. And so you start panicking, would you say? Great way to put it. It absolutely yeah. was a panic because of that feeling of not being enough, you know, for, for life in general, but not being enough for my wife, not being enough for anybody, not feeling worthy of anything and really looking to that lifestyle as my identity with that being threatened. I didn't know who the heck I was without that. Right. And that right. was a panic. That was, I've now got a major situation that I've got to figure out and I've got to figure it out quickly. So can, can you help people understand, like you're talking about just like catering left and, and right to your wife and bring her out for extravagant shopping sprees and beautiful dinners. How, help us reconcile and understand how you're still feeling like you're not enough for her. It was, I know that might be tough to explain, but it, it, it actually, it is. And it isn't what I found so strange was the more that I did it, the more that I felt that I had to do it. When the bar kept on rising, I had to no longer, it wasn't about maintaining. It was always going a little bit further. Gotcha. It was, it was the goalpost was always moving. Right. And do you and do you have a sense that there was any piece of reality in those thoughts? Like, oh, my God, if I don't raise the bar, my wife's going to take off. She thinks I'm awful. I'm not enough. Or was that all strictly just in your head, kind of looking back on it? All strictly in my head. Yeah. She would have, you know, it's impossible to say I do. I don't have a crystal ball. But knowing who she is as a person, she would have stayed around without the lifestyle. Right. That was completely right. on me. Yeah. Yeah. Just you making the story up of I've got to do better. I've got to perform for her and give her whatever and continue to raise that bar and raise that bar to the point of a level that was impossible to reach. It became untenable. Right. It became right. absolutely untenable. The five figure Amex bills every single month were a panic. How am right. I going to, how am I going to pay that? How am I going to pay the mortgages? How am I going to pay for all those BMWs? You know I mean? It just added up. And, and did she was, know your salary was going down and that you were slipping? No, not at no. all. You kept that from her. Kept There's no way that I was going to be allowed to be seen as less than, right. You know, right. when we, 
when we first started dating, I was really, really doing well. And it's weird. I used, I never lied, but I used semantics to overinflate how I sounded financially. Right. You know, and I, I would always kind of just, it wasn't an exaggeration. It was just using language in an intelligent way to blow it up more than it was. So I'd set the bar really high from the get go. Can you give an example? I'm trying to think. I had one deal that had a very nice commission attached to it, but the commission was going to be paid out over the course of three years. And so I just left that part out of it and uh, just said I got X amount of dollars for one deal. Right, right. Yeah. So just doing what you could to make things sound even better than they were. And I didn't even have to do that because things were right. really good as they were. All of my all of my friends, the neighborhood that I lived in, it was fairly well known that I was a successful, wealthy guy. Yeah. I didn't need to pat it. And, but and the I, fact is I did because that's how I felt. Yeah, and I know you've done so much work and that's why you're a reinvention architect and we'll get into that soon. But um, looking back on it, like how do you feel just knowing like you, you had everything yet it wasn't enough? Like, are, are you able to, how do you kind of handle that thought process now looking back on it? There's a lot to that. And I'm trying to think how to approach it in a manner that's going to really answer the question. And what's yeah. coming up for me was, it's very easy now to look at it. And I can see very clearly what I was doing was I was chasing approval and acceptance and self-worth and a sense of adequacy through materialism and status and prestige. And like I said earlier, the goalpost was always moving. The finish yeah, line was always yeah. going. So every step that I took forward, the finish line also moved one step away. Right. And what I was actually doing, I think what's so interesting is running is, you know, chasing running is it's kind of two motions at once, if you think about it, we're moving towards something. So I was chasing that approval and that acceptance and that self-worth, but I was also running away from who I actually was. Right, right. So you're at this point, you're, you're seeing your, your salary slip and slide. You hit what you know we mentioned was almost like a, a panic of how am I going to maintain this lifestyle and, and my wife and everything. And so tell us, tell us the next steps you took. In that panic, I started thinking about what options I had. And there were, I had, I had blinders on now. I totally had blinders on because there were only two options available to me, which looking back, hindsight, I know that there were plenty of other options, but there were two options. Number one was having a very candid and honest conversation with my wife saying, I cannot afford our lifestyle anymore. And something I think is really important, I'm not enjoying this lifestyle anymore. It's right. killing me. Right. It's not what I want to do. I actually want to, I want to write a screenplay. I want to invent something. I want to launch my own business. I wanted to be entrepreneurial before it became cool to be an right. entrepreneur. Right. I wanted to do all of these things. And I just would have had to sit down and have an honest conversation with her and say all of that. Right. The other option was I started at the bottom of the company. And why that's important is I learned how every single process worked within our company and within our partner company. And I realized that there was an opportunity for me to exploit our partner company's warranty policy 
for my financial gain. And it was basically, it was have an honest conversation with my wife or commit fraud against a tech giant. And I was so terrified to have that honest conversation with myself first and foremost, then with her, and then even with my family. So terrified of that, of being seen as less than, that defrauding one of the largest tech companies became the easier route. And that's what I chose. Wow. So without getting into any kind of details or or, uh, having listeners figure out how to exploit um, large organizations, are you able to tell us essentially how you did that and how you were getting money from them and defrauding them? I can do it in a very brief way. And if anybody Googles my name, they will figure out how I did it because it's out there. <laughs> okay, okay. It's completely... All oh, the well, then you may as well share what you're willing to share. Yeah, how, how did you defraud them? So really quickly, Cisco Systems has... Um, they have something, they have a, um, a service contract that you can buy that covers a piece of equipment that you buy from them. That service contract allows you to, when a piece of equipment fails, you call Cisco and Cisco will send you a brand new piece of equipment. You have to send the faulty piece of equipment back to them to keep them whole. I figured out that I could get brand new equipment from Cisco and I could buy on eBay that same piece of equipment for less than I could sell the brand new piece of equipment for. So there was a delta between those two and that was my profit margin. So I bought a Cisco device, I bought a Cisco service contract, I created a fake alias, I've created a fake company, and I opened what's called a technical assistance center case. And I said, part number 123 has failed, please send me in part number 123. They did it, I sold it, I sent them the one I bought on eBay, I got a check a couple of days later, and I was in the uh, I was in the clear. Wow. And what kind of cost and profit are you talking about for a part like that? There were the interesting thing on this was some of them were it's only a couple of hundred dollars up to a couple of thousands of dollars. But I for the period that this fraud went on and the fraud went on for about ten and a half months, I received over 600 parts from Cisco that I resold. Wow. Wow. And uh, and eventually, after 10 months of doing this and supplementing your income with this fraudulent money you were making, tell us, tell us what happens then. So I'm going to take us back in time. Remember I said on September 30th, 2013, I had pretty much what we would say that it was all by kind of, you know, the standard metrics that are out there. Yeah. yeah. On October 1st, 2013, I had actually been wooed away by our largest competitor with an aggressive pay package, and I thought this would be a nice fresh start for me. So I had started this brand new job. I was two weeks into this job. And 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 you you quit the defrauding and everything and just were were good to go, you were thinking? I actually, I had quit. I had quit the defrauding. Yeah. Had my new job. It was a nice fresh start. You know, I was thinking this is going to be great. I drive from my home in Connecticut to Manhattan. Uh, our office was right next to Madison Square Garden. Actually, we looked down on top of the garden. It was really cool. And I'm setting up my desk for the day, like we all do. You know, I put my laptop out, I put my notebook, my pen, and yeah. I grab my phone. And I realize that there's a missed call on a voicemail. And I thought that's so strange. Who's calling me at 8:45 on a Tuesday morning? And so I listened to the voicemail, and this is what I heard: 
Mr. Stanlin, this is Special Agent McTiernan with the FBI. We are at your residence and have a warrant for your arrest. You need to call us and come home immediately, or we will issue a warrant with the federal marshals. Holy crap. Yep. And, and what's going through your head at that point? So, so many different things. So yeah. I had taken the elevator up 37 floors to our office. My heart and stomach fell those 37 floors and yeah. I had just come up. It was like all the oxygen in the room had immediately vanished. I, I was having difficulty breathing. I thought that that voice message, which was clearly up to my ear and nobody else could hear it. I thought that the entire office, all my brand new colleagues knew that I was wanted by the FBI. And amid all of that, my heart spoke and it spoke so crystally clear. And it said, I told you so. Wow. Wow. So you knew immediately why an agent was calling you. Absolutely. Yeah. No doubt in your mind, like, holy shit, I was just busted for all this fraud I committed. It was everything had come tumbling down. There were red flags as I was committing the fraud and I just chose to ignore them. And it just was, I was trying to outrun an avalanche. Yeah. So when you got that new job or, and you quit the defrauding uh, plan and you got the new job and in your mind were you thinking, all right, I'm scot-free. I don't have to do this defrauding anymore. I've got a new pay high paying gig. Um, Things are great. I'm sitting pretty. And you figured the defrauding was all in the past? I really did. Yeah. I, I foolishly thought that it was behind me. This was a fresh start. You know, we we're going to, we being my wife and I, we're going to be able to like turn something, turn this into something. You know, she had started her own business selling vintage furniture. You know, that was going pretty well. I was like, okay, this is, this is a really good opportunity for New us. Fresh start. Really exciting. You get the phone call and then so you had to go to your home immediately? I had to I had to pick up my car from the garage when I told the guy that I was only going to be there for nine hours. Here I am 15 minutes later. He had right. to get it all the way from the back. <laughs> okay. And I had to drive from I had to drive from Manhattan back to Connecticut. It was about an hour long drive, and it was one of the scariest drives I have ever made. Yeah. I mean, I is your mind just going a thousand miles an hour at the time, thinking like and, and were you were you already creating like plans like I need a lawyer I don't know what's going to happen were you did you realize that this could involve prison time so I'll I'll walk you through there was there were so many phases and I'm not going to walk yeah. you through but I'll walk you through like the three big ones yeah so please the first one was when I am driving down the the West Side Highway in Manhattan. I got the Hudson River on my left. I've got Riverside Park on the right. Normally a gorgeous drive. I, I always enjoyed looking at that stuff. This was a complete blur, didn't see anything. And in my mind, I was actually thinking, this is gonna sound so ridiculous. You know what? It's just a big misunderstanding. I'll sit down with them, we'll have some coffee, we'll figure it out. Wow, that's right. what I that's what I was honestly thinking. And like I could, maybe like, a slap on the hand, we'll talk through it. It's good. Exactly. I thought yeah. that maybe with my sales skills, you know, I'd be able to talk my way out of it. Everything was right. going to be okay. Right. You know, and I knew even as I was saying that, there was just my heart was sitting there going like, "Hey dummy, the FBI doesn't sit down and have coffee." Like, it, you're Yeah, but you're, I I completely understand it though, you know? Like you're trying to just be so hopeful that it's not going to be as bad as you, you're thinking, right? Like, I could understand that thought, as crazy as it sounds. I'll just have a coffee with them. We'll figure it out. 
squared yeah. up. <laughs> it was still it was still the morning. I was like, coffee, this will be great, you know. So, I, so I, that was thought number one. Thought number one. Number two was, what am I driving into? What am right. I actually? What's what's waiting for me when I get home? So I called my wife, and it took seven excruciatingly long rings for her to pick up. And, and when you she were thinking up, she was at home, she I knew she was home. Okay. I okay. knew I knew she was home. And it was seven excruciatingly long rings just waiting for her to pick up. And when she did, her voice was the voice of pure fear, sadness, broken trust. And she said, she just said, Craig, what's happening? And I couldn't answer her because I didn't, I knew that it had caught up with me, but I didn't know what actually was happening. Right. Right. He was so clueless. I was so helpless. And to hear the pain in her voice, and I thought that the phone call was going to be was, was being recorded. She had, and I'll tell you what actually happened, because um, I think this is an important part of the story. So the FBI knocked on the door about eight thirty in the morning, and my wife was still in bed with our uh, with our little dog. Um, she was a little little Westy, little white fluff ball. You know, Matisse hears the the knocking on the door. She jumps off the bed, barking. You know, defending our home. My wife sleepily right, right. walks to the uh, the door. She opens it up, and there were fifteen federal agents with assault rifles and pistols pointed at her head and her face, and they were there to execute a search warrant. So when she Holy was, crap. yeah, wow, yeah, when they come, they come. They come full force. That just seems pretty excessive for a white collar crime. You know, you know, I'm going to actually a lot of people say that. And I I always defend the FBI. And I'll tell you why, because they obviously did all the background checks. They knew that I didn't own a gun. They did not know if I bought one illegally. They do not know my state of mind because here I am. I've been committing a fraud for 10 and a half months. That already means that I'm not really of the right mindset. They don't know what they're walking into and they have wives. They have kids. They have people they love and that who love them and they've got to protect themselves. Yeah, no, I appreciate that perspective. You're right. You know, and it's it's you know, everybody says it's um, such bullshit that they come in like that. And I always defend them because, you know what, if I was on their shoes. And I had somebody that I loved waiting for me at home. Yeah, I'm going to defend. I'm going in the same exact way. Yeah. Well, like you said, they really have no idea what they're walking into. They don't. Um, you know, and that's that can be pretty damn scary. So, wow, that must have just flipped your wife out, I would imagine, it, opening the door to that. Like, holy crap. Complete trauma. And then also what was and I I'm, I'm feel terrible that she had to experience this. I. I got the aftermath of it. They were very respectful in their search, but they went through everything. And having that many people go through your home, your sanctuary, your safe place, and going into all of your private drawers and just your life in general, that's really hard. So when I got home, you know, I could just feel that the house was violated. Even right. though they were, it wasn't like the movies where they were, you know, dumping drawers and taking books off the bookshelf. It was nothing like that. But things yeah. were just, you know, a things were missing. Uh, then things were askew. It just felt wrong. It had a very yeah. strange vibe. It was like our home was no longer a home. It was like I was walking into a stranger's home. Right. You know, which right. is really, really weird. So this was uh, was thought number two in your conversation with your wife. Was there another thought you had uh, there was, that you were going to share? Yes, there was number three, and you nailed it. 
I need an attorney. Yeah. I need an attorney yeah. and I need one quick. I don't have a defense attorney on, you know, on standby, but I did own multiple homes. So I called up my real estate attorney. And as it turns out, they had a white collar on, on your way home, on my way home. Okay. On my way so home. you're already on the horn with a lawyer. Yeah. And it, well, there was a white collar defense attorney who rented office space from my real estate attorney. Pure, okay. pure wow. chance, pure luck. And so I was able to secure representation on the way home, which made me feel a little bit better. But I still yeah. didn't know what the hell I was driving into. Yeah. Yeah. And so you get home. There's 15 FBI agents armed searching through your house scouring your house your wife's probably in tears and if not certainly in a bit of shock wondering what the hell's going on like you said what happens when you arrive so i i take the uh i go through the we lived in a gated community and i go through the gates and i take the right hand turn down the hill and it just came into view it looked like a scene out of a movie. There was literally a SWAT vehicle there. There was local police cars there. There were the unmarked cars. There were local police cars from the next town over, which I thought How was really strange. How many vehicles strange. would you say were there? There were probably, it was almost one for every person that showed up. It was like they all took their own car. I mean, there was just an <laughs> army of cars there. They were just parked haphazardly all Holy over the crap. place. And what, did you ever have a thought like, I can't, I can't go home. Uh, like I'm on my way to Texas, Canada. That one, if we're going to say there, there's a forethought, that <laughs> one came in and went out as quickly as it came in. Cause I knew, oh my God. you know, I knew how dangerous that would have been, how ludicrous that would have been. That would have been, yeah. you know, leaving my wife behind that. I just, right, it, it, right. It, I'm not going to lie. It definitely popped in. No doubt. Yeah. Like, Okay, what can I do? Where can I go? Especially when you see all those vehicles. So you pull up and, and get out of the car. They controlled the car. They saw me and they pointed and they they kind of used their body to guide me into a parking spot, then used their body to control the movement of the car door opening. And they asked me to identify myself, you know, Craig Stanland. And they said, empty your pockets. So I emptied my pockets. And they said, put your hands on the hood. I mean, this was straight out of a movie. And they frisked wow. me, they turned me around, they frisked me again. And you know, what's funny, we talked about like, you know, the crazy thoughts that go through your head of just like the the voice message was heard by everybody in my, you know, right. my new colleagues. Well, I had the weirdest thing as this was all happening. I looked and I go, holy crap, they really do wear those blue jackets with the yellow lettering like you see on TV. <laughs> I found that so shocking. I don't know why I'm so surprised by that. But I actually did. I was like, wow, they really do wear that. And then it's funny. And then they and then they um, you know, there's one agent, and again, like with the movie reference, but this guy was straight out of the movies. He was like six one, haircut was high and tight, salt and pepper. He had the gray suit with the, you know, the plain looking tie, um, steel eyes. And he put them like inches away from my face. He was a very intimidating guy. And he pulled the cuffs out. And I said, wow. you know, I said, look at me, and for the for the listeners and for you, you know, I'm I'm 5'4". At the time, I weighed 140 pounds. Not a large individual, right? right? And right, I said to him, right. I said, look. I said, look at me. I'm not a threat. Please don't cuff me. Because I honestly knew that those handcuffs were – there's a finality to handcuffs. And I knew yeah. that. You know, I knew, I knew it was over. But that yeah. just to me is like the – it's just kind of a nail in the coffin. And he looked right. at me and he said, it's procedure. There's no other way. And he asked me to turn around, put my hands behind my back. And he put them on me. And they were heavier and colder than I would have ever imagined. Wow. Wow. And at this point, 
are there neighbors popping out of this gated community, like poking their heads out of the doors and stuff? I would imagine this was a massive scene. I only saw one, and that's so funny that you asked, because it was right as I turned around and put my hands behind my back. I look up into one of the windows. I lived in a condominium complex, and I look up at one of the windows, and my neighbor Carl is sitting there hiding behind the curtain. And the moment we made eye contact, he acted like a seven-year-old and ran away. Oh my god! I just thought that was so strange. I was like, "Dude, you're wow. seventy. I was like, "You're seventy-five year old man." I was like, "What are you running away for?" But he just, you know, he ducked out of view. And it yeah. was. It's. I'm glad that you asked that because that was embarrassing enough. I didn't see anybody else, but I have to imagine everybody knew. You know, yeah. I have to imagine everybody knew. And there was, on top of everything, just it was a tsunami of emotions. It was fear and shame and embarrassment that my neighbors all knew guilt right you know just right. all of it pouring coursing through my veins yeah holy crap and so he cuffs you and then throws you into a, a squad car or wh what do they do with you then or walk you into the house so i actually asked at that point can i see my wife and they said no you cannot we need to make sure there's no co-conspiracy Right. And so I wasn't even allowed to see her. Then they put me in the back of back of an unmarked car, super tinted windows. The agent who put the cuffs on me, he got into the driver's seat and another agent sat next to me in the back back seat and started asking me questions. And foolishly, I didn't invoke my right to silence right off the bat because I just I knew it was over. Yeah. And I started answering questions. Um, and then eventually I was like, nope. I'm, 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 I'm going to be smiling. I'm shutting yeah. up. Yeah. Like, and, and I know how you, you just made it sound like it, it was surprising, but holy shit. Like you said, there's so many emotions going through your head and you have this, these authority figures asking you questions and, and I'm sure you're like the fear, the shame, all these feelings, right? You just respond and answer until you figure it out. Like, Whoa, I probably shouldn't be doing this. It was, so I was answering them and then I asked, and this is going to be like, again, one of those ridiculous things. When I remember, um, I remember when I was a 16 year old, you know, you get a parking ticket for like five bucks and it's, you know, right. you didn't want to pay the $5 um, parking fee, which we would always forget. And then it would get doubled and then it would get doubled again. But what <laughs> right. we would do, my friends and I, we would look at the ticket and be like, did they make a pl uh, mistake on the color of the car, the make of the car? Was there a typo on it? Anything right, that would right. get you out of that $5 ticket. So that flashed in my mind. And I said, can I see the warrant? Can I see the search warrant? And the guy said, you're not going to understand it. I said, well, I'd, I'd like to see it anyway. And he goes, you know, what are you trying to pull? I said, well, I'd like to see it. And he looked at it and I, he pulled out this very thick document. And <laughs> I realized, I go, wow, that's a lot of work. <laughs> they put a lot of work into this. And he starts, you know, I can't flip through. He's flipping through it for me. And right, he's right, right. I don't understand a damn thing. And I realize how yeah. ludicrous this absolutely is. And you were you were looking for like, you forgot the R in the street name. You're at the wrong house. Busted. I Let me out. I totally was. I mean, I was <laughs> grasping at straw. Like the, the ground beneath my feet had disappeared and I was just grasping at Holy any like shit. root that was sticking out of the soil that I possibly could. Um, even oh if they were God. fake, even if they're phony. I just, yeah. I was trying to, I was trying to, anything that I could to get out of it. Right, right. And then they, they take you straight down to, I don't even know where they take you, the FBI 
office? They, they took me to um, a federal courthouse because I had to be arraigned. Oh, okay. And so this was really one of, you know, I mean, this journey was one of, when I say like the bottom fell out, there was always there was always a false bottom and it just kind of like would fall out again. You would just disappear over and over again. And, you know, each little step was just falling further into the abyss and going through the arraignment was one of those because I actually had to be processed and being processed meant, you know, the fingerprinting, the DNA, the strip search, um, which is like the most dehumanizing thing that you could ever imagine. I won't go into the details here, Um, but it's really, it's just terrible. It's just yeah. absolutely terrible. And, wow. you know, it was like the, the, the realness of the situation kept making itself known the more things kept coming up. Yeah. Holy shit. And while it became more and more real, I would imagine part of it must have just um, felt surreal in, in some ways. Like, holy crap, here I am in a federal courthouse. I was in the basement of a federal courthouse. I mean, like I had gone in the entrance that I didn't even know existed. Right, <laughs> you know, I right. mean, like yeah. I was in that. I was in this weird garage. The agents had to lock their guns in this locked suitcase in the trunk, which they then locked the trunk. Not like you know, we all lock our trunk. It actually had the big scene that they had this master lock on it. I mean, it was it was insanity. And then they locked the trunk on top of that. Right, right. You know, I mean, it was just it surreal is such a great way of putting it. It was I was very present with what was happening. But at the same time, it was almost like I was slightly out of my body observing what was happening. Yeah. If that makes sense. It was like. Absolutely. It was, it was, I'm there, but I'm not there. And I think that our body has that protective measure, you know, when we're going through a traumatic event, it's like, I'm going to, you know what, I'm going to, I'm going to pull just a little bit of you out of there. Yeah. Yeah. That's exactly what they say happens with a lot of folks with trauma. You know, you, it's a way of escaping it, right? It it absolutely is. It absolutely. And and I'm, I'm grateful that it did that. And so, you know, I go through processing and then I get brought into the courtroom and I got brought in through that, you know, when we watch a movie now picture, you're looking at the judge sitting at the bench and to the right or left of the bench is that door that the judge usually comes out of or somebody else comes out of. I came out of that door. Okay. (laughs) You know, and I got seated in the jury box of all things. Wow. Yeah, which I thought was very strange. But then I saw my my wife walk in and just the weight of the world on her shoulders. And we made yeah. eye contact. And we still couldn't even speak. And it was just so we were we were so close distance wise and so far away emotionally. Yeah. And and you hadn't talked to her yet, but you saw her come in. And and are you wearing regular clothes or do they actually have you in a jumpsuit type of thing? I was able to put on my regular clothes. And part of that strip search, when they take your clothes away from you, they wring them out as if they are trying to extract water from them. Uh, They take them meticulously to make sure there's no drugs, no weapons, nothing hidden in there. So my clothes, yeah, I had them all back on, but they had been just wrinkled. You know, it was just a wrinkled mess. Yeah. Yeah. Whew. And so you get in front of the judge. 
I get in front of the judge and this was one of those moments where the, you know, I was kind of pulled out of my body situation. There was a lot of legalese going on yeah. that I completely didn't understand, but I realized a couple of things I was being charged with. And I don't even remember the FBI agent telling me this when he arrested me, but I was being charged with one count of mail fraud. And then I will never forget this account of mail fraud carries with it up to a 20 year prison term and $250,000 fine. Wow. And I could I could hear in the silence of the courtroom, I could hear my wife just make this guttural sound as if yeah. as if something inside her broke and my head just hung. It just it my head collapsed and I was like, my life is over. Right. And they had my father and um, my wife had posted bond for me. So I was able to to get out that day. OK, OK. And and getting out for you meant what? Like going home? Do you do you try to go to work the next day? What happens when you leave the courthouse? It was well. First, that was the first time I was able to speak to my wife, and it was, yeah. "Are you okay? Yeah, I'm okay. Are you okay? I'm okay." And we both gave each other that smile that you give one another to make the other person, you know, think that everything's okay when everything is very far from okay. Did she still know nothing about what had happened? She, while I was committing the fraud, she knew I was doing something because it involved a ton of equipment showing up, showing up at the house. It involved me going to UPS stores. Um, I mean, this fraud was, to give you an idea of the scale of this fraud, when I was sitting in the back of the FBI vehicle, when I was arrested and they were asking me questions and I was still answering them, they said, who else was involved? Nobody. Bullshit. Don't lie to us. The, we think a fraud of this size and this scope had about 30 people working on it. And it was just wow. it was just me. So she knew I was doing something. That's how that's how big it looked to the outside. She knew I was right. doing something and she would ask, is what you're doing OK? And I broke the sacred foundation of any relationship trust. And I said, it's fine. Stop asking me. And I'd sometimes right. get very short with her. I would get angry with her because the fact is I knew what I was doing was wrong and she's calling me out for it. Right. Right. Yeah. Wow. So, so you leave the courthouse with her and we, we, we uh, drive home, we drive home and, you know, it's just kind of awkward, small talk, trying to figure out what the next step is trying to figure out what do we do? You know, where do we go from here? And then when we got home, it was just a huge argument. You know, it was, it was, she just, I think what it was, was just that breaking of trust, that fear, that adrenaline that had maybe at this point just started pouring out of her body. It just came out in pure anger and rightfully so. Well, and it was the same day she had experienced the trauma of having Cor 15 guys yep. holding guns at her head. Correct. I mean, it was probably, I yeah. haven't spoken to her in years, but I have to imagine that was the longest, most challenging day of her life. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. And and what are the next days and weeks like? Are you do you know like okay, there's a court date. You're meeting with your lawyer. Are you going to work at your new job? I resigned. I resigned, and my boss, my new boss, to his credit, what an amazing, extraordinary man. I knew I sounded like I was broken when I was on the phone with him, and I said, you know, thank you so much for the opportunity. Something um, has come up. And um, I unfortunately have to resign my position. And he said, whatever you're going through, it will resolve itself and we're going to keep your job open. 
Wow. And I'll tell you, this is this is kind of interesting. So October 1st, 2013, not too many people would probably remember this. The government was actually in a shutdown. So okay. the FBI agent gleefully told me that everybody uh, came there to arrest me for no pay. And I bring that up because it also means the press office was closed. So it hadn't wow. it hadn't hit the news. So my okay. boss had no idea what was going on. And he just was so kind. I said, no, really? You know, I, I'm not going to share what's going on, but I, I have to resign. And he's like, nope, not going to accept it. Not, not wow. going to accept it. And so I just, I knew I wasn't going to win that argument. So I let that go. Then I had to make all the phone calls to the family, to my father-in-law, to, you know, my father, to my mom, my aunt. I had to tell a couple of close friends just to kind of share. And there was the amount of uncertainty after being arrested is one of the biggest layers of hell I could possibly imagine because I did not know what was going to happen. I didn't even know at that point if I was going to go to prison. I didn't know what kind of prison I would go to. Like I said earlier, I'm not a big guy. I thought I was going to Oz, you know, from HBO. I thought I was going to get raped and beaten every day. That's literally what I thought was going to happen to me. Well, and did you know any of your future? Did they say like, okay, your court date's going to be two months from now or, or any next steps? Or are you just sitting not knowing anything at all? It took a little bit of time. It took a little bit of time. Yeah. So I'm trying to remember. It was probably, it might have been around two weeks until I got my next date. And that was going to be pleading guilty. And that was like via your lawyer? That was via my calling up? Yeah, calling up, having meetings with him, me still yeah. trying to, you know, going through the the complaints saying, you know, they didn't get that right. That's not true. That's that's false. Right. You know, can we fight this? And goes, you fight it and you lose, you're going to get even more jail time because they do right. not, the government does not like when you fight. Yeah. He's like, you're guilty and you have to plead guilty. And so these two weeks, like, can you tell us what your days were like? Uh, your wife was still around. You're working with your lawyer. Otherwise, you're not going to work. So what's occupying your day other than probably ruminating about this whole situation? Her new business. Her new business. Okay. Because now I knew that my job, as nice as he was to keep that open for me, I knew that eventually the press office was going to open and it was going to hit the news. Um, and yeah. it and by the way, it, it did. And it did hit the news. And he called me up and he said, um, very graciously, I accept your resignation. (laughs) He was he was a very classy guy about the whole thing. I really give him a tremendous amount of credit. But um, it was my my wife's new business of vintage furniture. So it was all that uncertainty, a tremendous amount of drinking, but working on her business because we didn't have my income. And if I was going to go to prison, even if I wasn't going to go to prison, we had a mortgage to pay. We had all these things that we had to pay for. So we had to. And and you you were able to work alongside of her with the business. I even through this challenging. I was. And I think it was more both of us just trying to keep our head above water. I don't think it was an emotional connection. I think it was really a fear driven connection that we were like. We have to, because the business was so in its nascent stages, it was so new that we were like, right. we we got a lot of work to do to get this thing up and yeah. running. So it was just fear driven. Right, right. And so what what turns out to be the next step? When does that happen? And, and 
Take us through that. The next step was pleading guilty. And that took place in the beginning of January. So I was arrested in 2013. This was January 2014. And I was so dreading this day. You know, like I said earlier, the the bottom just kept falling out. Well, pleading yeah. guilty is you can't undo that. Right. And I, right. you know, I knew I was guilty. I knew what I was doing was wrong. But to And do you go into this knowing like the moment you plead guilty, that's are, are you immediately then do you still go home after that? And then you have to come back for your sentencing and, and how does you nailed it? Um, believe it or not, you actually I pled guilty and I was able to I drove myself to the the courthouse. My wife, I didn't actually want her to come with me. Uh, yeah. So I drove myself, met my attorney. Um, it's, you know, very quick and easy thing. You've been charged with this. How do you plead guilty? OK, sentencing will be um, June 10th. So now I've got, you know, January to June, all of that wow. uncertainty of am I even going to go to prison? And I was assigned a pretrial probation officer and he was telling me, you know, he looked at my case and he's like, oh, what you did. He's like, you'll get probation, you know. And wow. so he's he's filling my head with that. My attorney was like, you're going to jail. And of course, right. I'm listening to my probation officer because, you know, he knows better because <laughs> he's yeah, and, and- I want to hear. Yeah, exactly. And earlier you mentioned drinking. Were you drinking heavily at this point? And how's your mental health at this point? Mental health was absolutely terrible. I was drinking. I've been I was I've been a drinker. Well, I'm actually it's funny. We're recording this. We're probably right around my two year sobriety mark. Hey, congratulations. Thank you so much. I was um, my my the majority of my life. I was a massive drinker. I started in the sixth grade. And I hit the ground running. And so I was drinking after this so much. I mean, just extreme give, quality. Let, give us a, an example. Like, are you waking up and drinking or are you waiting until 6 p.m. and then you're just getting hammered? What was your drinking Great like? question. I had to to do the vintage furniture business that requires going to a lot of um, estate sales. Estate sales, you have to get there very early. So I was not drinking in the morning. So I was, you know, I was keeping myself sober for that but as soon as all that was done that could be anywhere from 4 to 6 p.m that's when i'd start drinking that's when the bottles of wine would go and my wife was drinking with me she was drowning her sorrows as well so we were just both of us sitting there consuming so much she would always go to bed earlier than i would and i would stay up in the kitchen and i would actually sit on the floor with a bottle of captain morgan's and I had this little little trick that I did where I do these little micro pours, you know, I'm like, oh, it's not too much. It's just a little micro pour. And I would just right. drink that a little bit. And then the empty bottle at the end of the night spoke volumes. And I, wow. so many nights I'd start sitting there. I would just start sobbing. I would just start yeah. sobbing. And I think about it. I said, you know, I'm financially ruined. I start thinking about my life insurance policy. And, you know, I had to, because it was white collar crime, I had to, to fill out all of my financial information. So it was very clear that I was worth uh, more dead than I was alive. You know, I mean, I'd right, done the paperwork. Right. It was very clear to me. And so I started thinking about, you know, she'd be better off without me. She can live. There's, there's, an, there's enough money there that she can have a nice lifestyle. And I would just think about killing myself on the kitchen floor. And I would have inevitably pass out from the alcohol. I would wake up in drool and snot, um, you know, hope to God that she didn't see me. And I would climb climb into bed. 
And I was wow. doing that almost every night. And you were still able to wake up and get yourself to the state sales? I was. Yeah. I was. I was. It was. I think that was a lot of that fear. And I know you, this might be hard to put your finger on it, but yeah, I know you said, like, I was thinking about dying by suicide, right? Like, she'd be better off. She'd have money. She'd be fine. Are you also, like, are you having other symptoms of, like, clinical depression, do you think? Or was it really just, like, I should do this so that she is better off? Um, do you know what I mean? Like, I do. There was a tremendous amount of shame. Yeah. Because the... Remember when I said that, you know, when I got that voicemail from the FBI, my heart spoke and it said, I told you so. Yeah. Well, when I first figured out this fraud, it took me months to put this fraud together. And when it came down to actually hitting the send button to initiate the fraud, I, ha I hovered my finger over the mouse button, you know, to, to hit the send button. And my heart spoke again and said, stop, don't do this. This is not the way. Yeah. And it took thousands of choices over those 10 and a half months to commit this fraud. And it's not an exaggeration to say that every single one of those choices was made in the face of my heart saying, stop, don't do this. This is not the way. And now that it had all caught up to me and it had such ramifications on me, on my family, on society, it just the shame of ignoring my heart was crushing. So it was, it was, she'll be better off without me. And I'm, ex I'm feeling so much pain that I don't want to feel anymore. Yeah. Right. Right. And, and, and I also want to say really quickly, my, I was drinking so much that it was as if the, the gray matter in my brain, the, uh, the, you know, the part that kind of keeps it all cohesive. If I felt like it had, it felt like Swiss cheese. You know, I remember there were times I was able to help her with her business, but there were times I'll never forget. I looked at the dishwasher one time to load it and I was dumbfounded by it. Like right. I just was, I just could, I, my cognitive functioning was waning. Like it felt like a monumental task that, that you couldn't even complete and it, it, it was in properly. I couldn't even, could, couldn't even complete it. Couldn't even figure out like how it worked. I just yeah, was right. looking at it. Like I think a little bit of my spatial recognition yeah. Yeah. was shot. Right. And so you were clearly self-medicating, right? Drinking and drinking to, to feel better. It sounds like you were able to kind of function, though. You were able to get yourself to the estate sales. You were able to help with the business. I was. I was able to do that. And what was so interesting with all of this uncertainty and all of this fear, I found a bit of joy in the work, Yeah, in helping her create this thing, you know, and it was really what I had always wanted to do on my own, not necessarily vintage furniture, but to, create, yeah. you know, launch my own business. And she was doing it. And to be a part of that, I realized, I said, wow, this is, this is so cool. And it was, it was, it, it cut two ways where it was like, this is amazing. This is something I could do. And I'm going to lose all of it. Right. Right. You know, and the more the more joy I felt, the more shame I felt, because yeah. it was also talk about like that shame and then, you know, the little feelings of depression. How dare you feel good? Right. Right. Wow. So take us up to, to June. I'm, I'm guessing you're are, are you doing much at all with your lawyer at this point? Or is it just like, well, we'll see what happens when we show up for sentencing, because 
the case is essentially done and now it's up to the judge. There's a lot or, of paperwork. <laughs> you okay. know, there's honestly, there's a lot yeah. of paperwork. It was getting um, letters from family and friends. Hey, hey, Craig's an okay guy. Here's how I know him. Right. You know, getting right. all of those, um, continuing to fill out the financial documents. I sat down with Cisco the day before sentencing to explain exactly how I had done it. And I actually pointed out another um, flaw in their system that yeah. I didn't take advantage of. But I was like, hey, you want to be mindful of this? Um, right. It was sitting down with the FBI and the district attorney to go through the actual, you know, all the equipment that I took. Okay. Was, it was just, it was a lot of, just a lot of paperwork. Was there any kind of, like, were you hoping or, or working towards trying to get mercy? Uh, is there any of that going on? Like you shared with them how you exploited the, the loophole and such. Is there a, an ask of, can you all ask the judge for leniency for me? Or how did that piece my lawyer took care of that, where it was, you okay. know, Mr. Stanland will sit down with you. Uh, we're, you know, I don't think it was a di direct ask. I think it was more like, we're hoping you can say something nice at sentencing. Yeah. You know, it was right. not like, right. it was not a quid pro quo. Like, Mr. Stanland's yeah. going to do this for you. Now you owe us this. It was, right, we're going right. to try to, A, do the right and hope that it pans out in a positive way for my client. Right. Yeah. So the day of sentencing or even the week of sentencing, are, are you starting like what's going on in your head? How's your mental state at that point? And bring us just days before and up to the, the sentencing. Sheer, utter terror and uncertainty. Yeah. I had I was so fortunate that one of my when it hit the news, one of my neighbors had read it in the local paper and he took a shot and sent me this text and said, you know, I'm so sorry to hear about what is happening to you too. I have a friend I think you should talk to. And it turns out his friend had started a white collar support group. And so I had wow. been, yeah, unbelievable of all things. And so I had been meeting with, uh, his name is Jeff and it's the um, Progressive Prison Ministries. Um, it's not a religious organization, although it does have that name to it and completely agnostic, but I was meeting with him and he was telling me what to expect. You know, if you go to prison, here's how you need to behave. He was so helpful to me through this process. So I was able to lean yeah. on him in that week before sentencing, but even he knew most likely I was going to prison and it really was out of my hands at that point. Were you still holding on to some hope of, you know, the the PO, the probation? I think you said it was a PO who was saying, ah, you won't get jail time. Oh, absolutely. This. Was there still hope? No, no, no. You still, I'm had still hope. hoping. I was, yeah. I was hoping, I was going to say, I'm going to get three years probably of probation. I can totally do that. Um, it's actually in the federal system. It's called supervised release. I'm going to get three years of supervised release. I'm not going to go to prison. I'll be able to save my marriage. You know, all yeah. of the, I mean, there was so much hope going into it. And then the day yeah. of sentencing arrives and it was, again, right out of a movie, giant room, just cavernous courtroom, big federal yeah. court. I mean, the ceilings were like 30 feet high. Um, you know, there were cameras on the wall, which I said, please don't let this be televised. 
like who's right, watching this right. i was so scared of that and was it crowded were people in it there? was fairly crowded and it was like a it was like a bizarro wedding so you know my side sat behind me and the other side sat behind <laughs> Right, like, right. You know, are you with the groom or the bride? You go to the right. Are you with? The... You didn't even have to send out invitations. <laughs> you didn't though. even have to send out invites. They all showed up. You know, it was like, are you with a potentially, or the, because I was actually a convicted felon because I pled guilty. Are you with the convicted right, felon? Or are right. you with the, you know, with the prosecution? There's like an usher at the front, but you know, there was a decent amount of people there. Um, you know, my family had all come in. Um, Jeff from the support group was there. You know, obviously my wife was there. It was really nice to have all of those people behind me. And there was probably about an equal amount of people on the prosecution side. And it was very much not not nearly as dramatic as you see in TV in the movies. It was very um, routine. You know, they spoke, yeah. Cisco spoke. Um, they really didn't say all that much nice about me. They really didn't yeah. hook me up too, too much. Right. Um, and then my defense attorney, it was his opportunity to speak. And, you know, all of our, we all handle physically stress in a different way. Some of us will put on a tremendous amount of weight. Some of us will lose a tremendous amount of weight. Remember I told yeah. you I was 140? I yeah. went down to about 111. Wow. I, I graduated wow. high school at 115. Do you think some of that was the depression? Because I know some people just can't eat. Like I lost a ton of weight. Luckily, I'm I'm heavy enough that I should have lost weight. But I lost a ton of weight, like 50 pounds through my depression. Wow. Do you think some of that was the depression and not being able to eat? So my wife at the time, even through all of the arguments, even through the betrayal of trust, she saw me shrinking away and she made sure I ate. And I could eat. I was eating a pint of ice cream a night to try to, wow. to, try to stave off the yeah. the weight loss and i just couldn't i was just right burning through calories faster than i could so the, consume them the other question i wanted to ask you you talked about all of those people there to support you and how that was comforting for you i think you said something similar to that yet you earlier you talked about the the great amount of shame so at this point with them in the courtroom was it just a feeling of all right, they're here to support me. I love this. This is what I need. Or was there still like any, any shame at that point? Like, Oh my God, they're all going to hear the sentencing at the same time as me. And this is awful. That was a very intuitive question. And thank you for asking. You know, it's funny. I'm going to have to say some of that. I'm grateful they were there. That's almost a little bit of present day, Craig, yeah, you and right, I talking right. about that. I'm putting on that. The, I was grateful. I do remember that I was grateful that they were there, but every single act of kindness that anybody, a stranger who had no idea about my situation, um, you know, somebody held the door for me at the gas station, any act of kindness was like a razor blade cutting against me. It just hit that shame. So yeah, I mean, that's why I love that question that you picked up on that because them sitting there, yeah, it was supportive, but at the same time, it was just like, I don't deserve any of this. I don't deserve right. any kindness. Right. And I, ne I will never deserve kindness. I really believe that. Right. So, so Cisco isn't giving you many props in their talk. Your, lawyers, your lawyer speaks. And what happens next? Does the judge like leave and think about this and consider this? Or is there a response immediately? There, she took everything in and then 
you know, had her folder with all the letters and everything like that. And she uh, excused herself to her quarters for how long, I don't know. And then she came out, we all rise, everybody gets to sit except for me. And she goes through a tremendous amount of legalese that I am completely blanking on. Like I said, I'm 111 pounds. It's one of the most stressful things I've ever been through. My attorney suggested that I buy really ugly shoes, cheap and ugly shoes, because because you don't want to show up in court wearing $700 shoes to your sentencing. Uh, right. You know, it doesn't it, it's not a good look. And I realized where she was sitting at the bench and the fact that my feet were underneath the table the whole time that his strategy was dumb. But I <laughs> I, I was wearing these these shoes that I bought from Target. They weren't even like the right size because I couldn't find it. And I was like, whatever, I'm going to wear them for one day. They were so uncomfortable. My back was killing me. That weight loss really impacted my back. And I think also moving all the furniture probably didn't help either. So I was having difficulty standing. I was having difficulty breathing. All of this legalese. But I remember one key thing in particular. She held up that folder and said, you know, these are your letters from your family, from your friends, from your neighbors. And they indicate that you're a good man. And I was kind of like, Ooh, that sounds that sounds good. You know, it's still that, hope, you know, that little hope. And she goes, well, what I think, Mr. Stanlin, is that you're a bit like Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. You hide behind wow. the good so you can do bad. And then I was like, she's right. That's what I actually thought wow. in that shame. I was like, she's absolutely right. She sees through me. This is not going to be good for me. Back to all that legalese. And then the gavel comes crashing down. She probably didn't even hit it that hard. But to me, it was just like this thunderous thing going through this cavernous room. And I looked up at my attorney and I, I tilted my head like a confused dog, you know, <laughs> dogs tilt their head. And I just said, was I just sentenced to prison? And then he tilts his head like a confused dog, like I was an idiot. And he goes, you were just sentenced 24 months in prison, three years of supervised release in order to pay over $800,000 in restitution. And I just wow. nodded my head and said, oh, okay. Wow. And are you, you, would you describe it as being in shock at that Complete point? and utter shock. That, that it's, it was another bottom falling out. And at this point, you're not walking out the door, are you? Fortunately, I was able to walk out the door. I was able to what's called self-surrender. So I had a self-surrender date of August 14th. So I had a couple of months to get my affairs in order before going to prison. Okay. You had two months, but you knew this was a done deal. You were serving 24 months in a federal prison. Correct. Holy crap. Correct. But thankfully... Um, you know, Jeff had told me the white collar support group, uh, you know, he told me that chances were based on my crime, based on zero criminal record, um, you know, I'd be going to what's called a federal prison camp. So it's kind of the things that we hear about, like club fed, which, by the way, it's not club fed, but I'd be going with other white collar offenders and nonviolent drug offenders. Chances were I was going to go there. I had to wait for my designation for that to be confirmed. But when my designation came, I was, in fact, going to a camp. And that was a huge relief to me. 
Yeah. And can you tell us what the difference is? Between like a camp and even so in the yeah, I mean, camp, you make it sound like it's day camp. You're just going for a couple of years to day camp with these other white collar criminals there. You know, I'll be honest. Some people actually do try to pretend like that. You know, they do call yeah. it, you know, a little bit of their like vacation. And, right. you know, you're with other white collar offenders, nonviolent drug offenders. My safety was never a concern. Some of the yeah. guards treated us with respect. Some of them were treated us like we were the biggest scumbags in the world. Um, yeah. You know, I mean, there were some very dehumanizing experiences while I was there. It's still federal prison. Right? It, is, is it's it... still federal prison. And I think that's. And you're still locked up. You're still in a cell. So I had I was very fortunate. I didn't have a door. I had um, kind of like a cube you know, almost in like a corporate setting, it was concrete walls, but there was no yeah. actual door on my cell. So I could come okay. in and out. We had free movement, which is a difference between a camp and the other levels of a federal system are, I'll start from the top. You have like your penitentiary, the high security, then it goes to medium, then it goes to low, then you have a camp. Anything okay. above camp, you have what's con called controlled movements, meaning you can only move during set times. Right. But in camp, right. you know, if I wanted to go to the library, I could walk to the library. Okay. You know, which, okay. which was really, really, it was, you know, it was very great. It sounds huge. Yeah, it's, it's yeah. absolutely huge. It's absolutely huge. And, and what was in your little cube and was it just you or do you have a roommate? I had, I had a roommate. I had a bunkie. And in okay. prison, we call them bunkies. So I had, it was probably about, if I had to guess, it was probably about eight by 12 or eight by 13. We had bunk beds that were very narrow. Uh, he had a footlocker. I had a footlocker. We both had five hooks on the wall and we had these little plastic stools that we could sit on. That was pretty much the extent of what we had in our cube. And, okay. you know, I was very fortunate that my bunkie was really good guy really, really very interesting guy, uh, very intelligent, very successful businessman. And he was um, kind of like a little bit of a mentor to me. So I was very grateful for that. And you had that same bunkie for your full two years? I had. So when I first got there, I actually went to um, everybody at the prison I go to, went to um, goes to what's called the dorm. So I actually, for the first few months, shared a very large room with 16 other individuals. Um, okay. You know, which is kind of fun. It was a little bit of like camaraderie and, you know, getting to know people. It was a good way to come into prison, if you will. Uh, right. Made, you know, some of the friends that I kept through my my sentence, um, you know, when I was in the dorm, then I got shifted over to um, the other the other um, okay. not cell, but, you know, room, if you will. And yes, I had yeah. the same guy for the duration of my stay. And it also bears noting that I was able to do so it's 24 month sentence. I ended up doing a total of 21 months because I got time off for good time. Um, that's just a kind of a given in the federal system. State has something similar as well. But I did 15 months in federal prison in the prison camp. Then I went to the Brooklyn halfway house. And the Brooklyn halfway house was general population. So I was with the murderers and the rapists. Um, wow. You know, it was, I always kid that I'm so thankful that uh, Frank the hitman, literally a hitman for a very large crime family whose name I won't mention, he loved me and was really happy about that. Wow. So that must have been scary. And is that normal that you get shifted over there? It actually is. It's part of the federal system. And I wanted that actually because the halfway house, even though you're in general population, 
it is an integration back into society and you get integrated back into society because you can um you put in passes to leave the house so if you have a job you can go to a job you can go to the gym you can go to the pharmacy you can go to church okay so there's a lot more freedom. there's a lot more freedom and i really yeah. wanted that i was really looking forward to that yeah and did you have a, a roommate there as well so when i first showed up there i got put in the room that everybody who shows up um, gets put into and it was absolutely terrible it was next to the smoking area it was loud and it was loud because, and I can't blame some of the guys, some of these guys had been in for 25 years. They didn't know what an iPhone was, but now all of a sudden they have an iPhone, which they weren't supposed right. to have, but they were smuggled, you know, they'd smuggle them in. Everybody smuggled right. in their phones. Right. And so at two o'clock in the morning, they're chatting away with all their family who they haven't spoken to in 25 uh, years. Right. Um, yeah, you know, but it was, yeah, yeah. it was an absolute nightmare. And then a bed became available in another room and I had to get approved for that room because there was the former consigliere of a very large crime family was in that room and he had watched me and observed me and saw that I was quiet and well-behaved and I got approved for that room. So there's only six of us. And as you can imagine, that room was spotless. I think we were the only room that we had a TV. Okay. Wow. <laughs> so, you know, back at the camp, you mentioned going to the library. What, what else was there? What was that like? You had free movement so you could go, out of your little cube throughout the day, what were the areas and was there social areas? Was there a TV room? You all have a pool table? Like, what was it like? Good question. So we had, we had two, two buildings, um, that we could walk in between and the one building was kind of called the education building that contained our TV rooms. Also, uh, the TV rooms doubled as our education rooms. That's where the library was. That's actually where the dorm was, where I first stayed when I got there. And then the other room was, you know, where all of the other beds were, where the kitchen was and where the dining hall was, where the mess hall was. And so those were our two buildings. We also had a gym that was in a Kwanzaa hut. Now, the gym, you know, might sound really good and fancy, and I was very grateful that it was there, but I mean, things were held together with duct tape. I mean, they were rusty. Right. There was, I literally remember working out one time where I um, was doing push-ups on ice because there was ice on the bottom of the floor of the gym. Oh, my god! It was so cold. Wow. I actually still have shoulder damage from working out in that in wow. that freezing cold wow. it was you know so it was not like and anybody listening like i knew at a federal prison camp they have all these fancy things you know we had we had and i'm going to explain in a second because that person who's just like i knew they had fancy things we had a tennis court the tennis court was actually some lines painted in a parking lot that was filled with pots <laughs> we had that is you know we had a soccer pitch but the soccer pitch was probably had a 15 degree downward slope <laughs> and was filled with holes yeah, yeah, People yeah, yeah. rolling their ankles left and right and that thing. So while you're at camp, and even when you make a shift to the group home, how's your mental health at that point? I mean, was it was it okay knowing like, wow, this isn't nearly as bad as federal prison that I had in my mind? Um, how was your mental health? How'd you hold up? So I was relieved to be in camp. I was relieved to be making friends with people that my safety was totally fine my prison was the mental prison of shame. That shame was getting worse every single day. And I will never forget, there were two very distinct moments in this journey. The first one was about four months into the sentence. 
it was unseasonably warm in upstate New York. And I was sitting at one of our picnic tables outside and I had started journaling when I was in prison. I was trying to make sense of why I moved forward in the face of knowing what I was doing was wrong. You know, it's just trying to make sense of everything. And as I'm sitting there writing, I, I was listening to some rap music coming from the gym. There were a couple of guys playing handball. So the, the rhythmic sound of the ball hitting the wall and there was a gentle breeze going on and the, the, trees above the table were kind of, you know, the shadows were dancing on the table and all of that sound and the dancing shadows put me into this like fugue state where I just kind of went away for a little bit. And it was in that moment that I was hit like a bolt of lightning with a message from the universe of what really matters in this world. And it's freedom and family and friends, and gratitude, creativity, all of these things I had taken for granted. And I sitting there like, Oh my God, I get it. I get it. And I am not a religious person by any stretch, but I started saying, thank you. I looked up to the sky and I said, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. I will not fuck it up this time. I get it. Thank you. I was like, I've just been given the keys to what it is to live a good life. And then I heard the rap music and then I heard the ball from the paddle ball hitting the wall and it broke me out of that trance. And I looked around and I remembered I was in prison and I flashed back to being in the kitchen and thinking that I was worth more dead than I was alive. And I said, I've just been given the keys to life and I'm going to die before I have a chance to put them into practice. Wow. And it, the shame that I felt for all of those things being at my fingertips and disregarding them. Why did you think he'd die before you'd be able to? I mean, it seems to me like he got this incredible message, this vision, and this idea of almost a transformation, right? A, a change in your focus about what's important. And you knew there was an end to your term, your uh, sentence. The shame was just so strong that I just that call of suicide. Yeah. It was just the call of suicide wow. where I was like, I'm going to take my life before I get to put this into into practice. And that was, that put me down a really significant spiral, realizing that I sacrificed so much for so little and ignored my heart those thousands of times that put me into huge spiral. And then the second thing that happened, it was December 22nd. Um, I had spoken to my wife and I knew she was coming for a visit and I knew something was up to hear it in her voice. I could feel it in emails. Maybe I was making up stories. Maybe I wasn't, but I knew something was up and it was like the sort of Damocles was hanging over my head. So she comes for the visit and it's three days before Christmas. So the visiting room is absolutely packed. We squeeze into these two seats. We're surrounded by people, not the situation either of us ever envisioned for Christmas or would want. And I just started digging because I knew something was there and she was resisting, but I just wasn't picking up on the social cues and just kept digging. And then finally through tear filled eyes, she looked at me and said, I'm leaving you. Wow. And that's when the thread was cut. And that just was really that to me, again, those bottoms falling out. That was one of yeah. the biggest bottoms falling out, but I hadn't yet hit true bottom. That led me right. to somewhere even worse. And this was how long into your sentence? This was, I had gone in August 14th, so it was December 22nd. 
Yeah. So. So about four months or so. Yeah. And, and then once she shared that with you, and she left, and left you just reeling with that, and did did you? I would imagine that created another yet another downward spiral for the mental health. Massive downward spiral, an unbelievable mass massive downward spiral. So she said she's leaving me. Mm-hmm. That was bad enough, but then all of a sudden we've got Christmas. And Christmas in prison is pretty terrible. Yeah. We all try to put on a good face. We get some special food. I worked in the kitchen. So we, you know, we get those big, um, this big drumsticks, you know, those big, like comical drumsticks. So that's a real, it's a real, you know, it's a real treat for us. So we got to (laughs) make those. We get a special meal, but there's just an overwhelming sense that obviously nobody is where they want to be. Yeah. You know, and we're trying to make the best of it. So I go through Christmas, then New Year's is the same thing, right? But on New Year's Day, I wrote in my journal, I'm not going to get the wording correctly, but I wrote, I still actually have the um, the journal. And I read, it's actually, um, it's its own single chapter in my book, but it's just, it starts the journal entry. And I believe this to be true, was I cannot shake the image that 2015 is going to be the year I put a bullet in my head. And it just, it just went on from there of how I'm no good to anybody, how I don't deserve to live. And that was, that was, believe it or not, through everything that I'm telling you, that was actually, I would say, one of the biggest starts to the largest downward spiral that I experienced. Yeah. And, and how did that downward spiral manifest? In one of the most curious ways that I could ever think of, how it manifested was I had started meditating when I was in prison. I always wanted to meditate before I went away, but I always made excuses like I don't have time. You know, part of me was kind of like maybe a little, you know, it's a little macho bullshit. Like, oh, it's kind of stupid, even though I'm curious and intrigued. Well, there's a lot of time in prison and you got to figure out how to fill that time. So meditation became one of those avenues. During one of my meditations, my brain showed me a short film of what my suicide would actually look like. Wow. And it was me walking into the basement. It was, it was as if I was sitting in a movie theater watching this scene play out on screen. So a figure walks in from stage left and he's got a black hood on his head and I know it's me because I can just feel the resignation in his mind, shoulders and bones. And this figure walks in and he sits down on a chair next to a really dirty window. And he reaches under the chair and he pulls out a pistol, puts it in his mouth and pulls the trigger. And it was so disturbing. And I did what I imagine all of us would do if we had that vision. I waved it off. I thought that was so weird that it popped up in meditation. And I thought about it a little bit, you know, throughout the day. And then I kind of forgot about it. And I sit down to meditate the next day. The vision comes back and I wave it off again. And then it comes back again. And then I was like, wave it off again. And then the third day of meditation comes back again. Except this point, it doesn't go away. My brain played that short film of what it would look like to take my own life every second of every day for four months straight. And by the end of those four months, I could actually taste the cloth in my mouth from that hood that was over my head. 
I could feel the barrel in my mouth. I could feel the bullet going through the back of my skull. I could feel the chair underneath my butt. Everything was becoming real and raw and visceral as if it was happening in real time. And it was driving me insane. I would go to sleep at night. Again, not, not a religious man, but I think it's kind of interesting how we all pray to something when things are really, you know, or most of us pray to something when things really go sideways. And I would pray for the hand of death to kill me in my sleep. I'd say, please just put me out of my misery. Just kill me in my sleep. And every morning I woke up, I was disappointed to see the light of a new day. And that's when I had to make it stop. That's when I started to plan how I would kill myself. And when you said for four months, these thoughts were in your head every single day, was it all throughout the day? Would you try to push those thoughts away and they kept coming? I would, I would try to push them away. Um, you know, I'd throw myself into work at the kitchen, but it was always running in the background. Sleep, sleep was my only reprieve, you know, thank God for sleep. I didn't dream about, um, killing myself. Thank God. But sleep was my sleep was my reprieve from this. So I would just wait. I would, um, they count us in prison. Uh, throughout the day to make sure nobody's escaped. And there's a count at 10 o'clock. The majority of people go to sleep after the 10 o'clock count. I was one of them. So it was like, you know, getting a little bit of hopeful, you know, as 9.50 came around and be like, thank God I get to put myself out of my misery for, you know, seven hours. Right, right. And you get no access to a therapist or anything while you're in, in camp, I'll call it, or prison. And is it accurate that you have no therapy and, and were, were you sharing this with anybody and what were you doing to, to survive those months with the, the thought going through your head over all the, all the time? So I did when it started getting, I mean, it was bad from the get go, you know, from the first time my brain played it, it was bad. But when it started getting really bad, I decided to reach out to um, a therapist that was available to us. And I had okay, to be awesome. very, very, mindful about what I say, because I'm not sure if you know what happens if you mention suicide in prison. Do you know what happens? I don't. They lock you in solitary. Seclusion. Yep. Wow. They take all of, take everything away from you. They put you in a cell that is basically all glass and you're monitored 24 hours until you're no longer a threat to yourself or to anyone else. Uh, and you knew that. And I, and I absolutely time. knew that ahead of time. And here I am yeah. alone at rock bottom with the man who was responsible for putting me at rock bottom. And I hated that man. The idea of being locked in solitary scared the hell out of me. So I had to be right. very mindful with my words with her. And I was talked more about I'm not doing well because of my divorce. You know, I took yeah. that route. This woman could not have cared less. She, wow, you're kidding. Um, you know, we could have a whole different conversation about prison and education and rehabilitation and therapy. It doesn't exist. And I'm not even going to wow. take us down that rabbit hole. But she wore her disinterest on her sleeve that it was absolutely ridiculous. She handed me, you know, when you Xerox something a gazillion times, it gets that weird patina to it. Yeah, you remember yeah. that from school? Like you'd get the handouts. Oh, yeah. She handed me a handout that was like that. And it was 10 tips to, if you're feeling blue or something like that, literally right. one of them was like, have a bath. I'm in prison. Oh my God. Oh my It was God. another one. Drink some tea. I don't have access to tea. Wow. You know, there were things on there. I didn't even have the ability to do. 
Yeah. <laughs> it just sounds awful. That's ridiculous. It sounds like she's there just to to make lives worse. It was it was so bad. And talk about like shame and guilt. You know, she's wearing this on her sleeve. And part of me was angry, but the other part of me was so embarrassed that I was asking for her help because she also, most federal prison camps are adjacent to a medium security facility, which is what we see on television. And she right. supports both of them. So I felt so sheepish, like I'm wasting her time with my petty little problems when she has probably much larger fish to fry in the medium security facility. You know, just that not feeling worthy, not feeling enough, feeling that shame. Right, right. You know, I put I put it on me that I was like wasting her time. You know, I could have yeah. the anger I'm kind of expressing now. That's present day, Craig. I didn't really have that back then. You know, it was like, it was like, no, I, I deserve this for what I did. Did you still, did you see her more than one time? No, one time was all I needed to realize yeah. that this was not going to work for me. And right. to your other question, I didn't share with anybody. And I had some really good friends in prison, um, you know, really good friends who definitely cared about me. But I was afraid they would tell a guard out of concern for me and I'd find myself in solitary. I couldn't right. mention it over the phone because phone calls are recorded. I couldn't mention it over email because emails are monitored. So I bottled okay. it up for four months. Wow. All the way in, until you were out, out of the group home? Either? No. So this was when I was still in prison proper. So this was, this was yeah. during my 15 months. And... You know, the story, because obviously you and I are having a conversation, so it has a happy ending. But how I got to that happy ending, um, it's one of my favorite stories in the world. And I think it really, I'll just share it. So here I am bottling all of this up, trying to figure out how I can kill myself. Can I, can I hang myself in the gym? Can I go into the woods and hang myself? You know, I mean, just trying to come up with all these things because you have very limited access to things, obviously in prison. You know, it's not the easiest thing. And I was trying to figure all of this stuff out. And then I, I check email one day. It was a Wednesday afternoon. And one email from my best friend of 30 plus years, his name is Sean, and just says one thing. Says, hey man, can I come for a visit this weekend? And I said, yes, you can. You know why? Because the visiting room is not monitored. It's not recorded. I can have right. an honest conversation with Sean about what's going on. Sean has been my best friend for over 30 years. Trust him implicitly. I can get this demon out of me. So I said, yes, you can absolutely come for a visit. Saturday seems to take forever. I mean, it's like the longest couple of days of my life, but it shows up. And I watched Sean park his truck, make the long walk up the hill, come into the visiting room, and we, we embrace. And that alone is so meaningful because there is, as you could probably imagine, very little touch in prison. You know, we don't right, have that connection. Right. So to have that physical touch when I haven't had touch in so long, it felt so good just to even have that. And then we go to the vending machines and I have to tell Sean what to buy out of the vending machines because as an inmate, I'm not allowed to touch money because they think that means you're planning an escape. Ah, <laughs> so I'm like, can I have A12 and D37? And we get our, <laughs> we get our food and we sit down and Al, I cannot tell you how excited I am because I'm going to be able to share with him that things are not good, that I need his, I need help. I need his help. And it's, there's so much hope 
filled inside of me that I get to finally, you know, those four months, it was like I was a club soda bottle walking around with the cap just getting screwed tighter and tighter. I get to loosen that cap and just let it all out. And I open my mouth to speak and Sean cuts me off. He starts telling me that he's getting divorced. He's got money issues. He's got work issues. There's a sadness in his voice and in his eyes that in our 30 plus years of friendship, I had never seen or heard. And, you know, October 1st, 2013 was the day that my life changed when I was arrested by the FBI. Sean's visit was the second day that my life changed because in that split second, I realized that I had worth outside of all the things that I had thought had always made me worthy. Sean needed a friend. He needed me. I was a friend and nothing more. And in that moment, everything changed for me. Wow. Sean could have, he could have literally walked a hundred feet to his brother's house who he's really tight with and shared a lot of stuff. But instead he drove two hours to come to federal prison, which even visiting is not a fun place to come to. Right. right you know, because right. he needed me. And that complete, that's the day I started or the day after I should say is the day I started rebuilding and reinventing my life. And you want to know something insane after he, shares everything he just needed me to listen didn't want me to fix anything he just wanted i just held space for him you know i just sat there and once he got it all out we start talking about what's rob up to what's jason up to oh chris is doing this and you know just talking like the friends that we were i never shared with him that i was having those thoughts because i didn't have to and did your thoughts just immediately cease after that day. Unbelievable. I went to sleep that night, not praying for the hand of death to kill me in my sleep. The next day when I woke up, it was not rainbows and unicorns. I was still in prison. I was still consumed by a tremendous amount of shame, but I wasn't disappointed at the light of a new day. Sean's visit, just that one visit was a pinpoint of light and what had been a sea of darkness. That's all I needed. Yeah. That's pretty incredible. And that allowed you to finish out your time in a more meaningful way, I bet. It 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 was it was a very long it's been you know almost a decade of rebuilding and reinventing and I think that's part of the the beauty of reinventing our lives is that we are just constantly evolving. So this has been a tremendous evolution that's taken so many different phases, but those, those initial phases were, I can finish my time. And it was looking at it. It was all of a sudden this time that was a burden on me, this sentence that was like, you know, yes, I knew it had an end date to it, but when you're in prison, it doesn't necessarily feel that way. You can know it right. mentally, but now all of a sudden I realized, I go, wait a second, I don't have any bills. I don't have any of the stresses of the outside world. I can, wor- right. I can right. work on myself. So this thing yeah. that was just a, was a, the burden of time became a gift of time. Right. You know, and I started just using it and, you know still practicing meditation, um, yoga, journaling, gratitude practice, you know, all of those things started in prison. And almost 10 years later, I still do all of them. Wow, that's pretty incredible. So you, uh, you know, 
I, I really want to get to the work that you're doing now because it's so incredible. But tell us, you know, you moved to the group home and when your time that you're serving comes to an end, what's that like, the, the, the time you move out of that group home? So part of the group home involved um, actually me being on home confinement. So there was actually a couple of months where I was able to, thanks to an ex-girlfriend who hooked me up with a sublease of her apartment in Brooklyn, a gorgeous apartment, by the way. She was living in Seattle, didn't want to lose her apartment. I told her I couldn't afford it. And she said, well, can you pay? I mean, this is how kind she was. And I told her and she goes, good. I don't want to lose the apartment. And I don't trust anybody else to live there. So I went to home confinement for two months. I had an ankle bracelet on. Um, I had to report to the halfway house once a week. Uh, they needed to collect their money because they take 10% of your gross pay. <laughs> so I, had to, okay. I had to pay that. Um, they said it was to check in and check your progress, but really they only wanted the uh, the check. So, right, so the right. day comes where I'm done with the Federal Bureau of Prisons and I go to the halfway house and my caseworker pulls out some scissors and she says, put your leg up on a chair and she cuts that bracelet off. And it felt so good. I mean, it felt like, the weight of the world had been taken off of me. I was kind of expecting like, you know, balloons and streamers to come out of the, the drop ceiling, which they didn't. <laughs> Maybe in my mind they did. But I was like, oh my God, I'm, I'm a free man. I can, I'm free. Except for one small caveat to that was I had to immediately report to supervised release because I had a term of three years of supervision. So okay. I had to walk down the road, but I was a free man walking down the road. And then I checked yeah. in with probation. Um, she was not the kindest person in the world, you know, kind of, it, it was actually very challenging. You know, here I am just basking in the glory of freedom. And I sit down with her and she asks me, you know, do you own a car? I said, no, I do not. And she said, do you owe, you know, federal restitution? I said, yes, I do. And she put her pen down. She looked at me and she goes, just so you know, you're a criminal and you'll never own an automobile again in your entire life. Wow. And, you know, that would hurt no matter what. But I've had a lifelong passion for cars ever since I was a little kid. Right. So that was that right. one really right. hit to the bone. Like, yeah. whoa, that seems extremely harsh. So she took me down a little bit. But once I checked in and I walked out of there, I did what I had wanted to do since I was in prison. I went to the water and, you know, it's in the awesome. city. So I didn't have the ocean but i went to the east river because i was in brooklyn i went to brooklyn heights which has this gorgeous promenade unbelievable view of manhattan i stopped into a deli to get a coffee and a croissant because i could because i couldn't do that when i was on an ankle brace right would see right. so i stopped in to do that i don't even think i was hungry or thirsty i just didn't care i was like i'm getting something i sat yeah. on a bench i had my coffee i had my croissant they were two of the most delicious things I've ever had. And I just sat there for hours staring at the skyline. And then I went home yeah. and it was really, it was surreal. It was absolutely wow. surreal. And there was this, and I, I try my best to remember what I'm about to tell you in my life now. But the first time I left my apartment, I didn't have to follow the guidelines of the ankle bracelet. You know, I could take a right or a left. I could go wherever I wanted and to never take that for granted again. The small right. things that we in life 
so easily in our autopilot lives and our just go-go lives. We take for granted, and I don't want to speak for everybody, I took for granted so many things. The ability to go to my refrigerator and pull out food, to wear whatever clothes I want to wear, to make that right or left out of my apartment building, to go where yeah. the heck I wanted. It was unbelievable. Right. Wow. That's really cool. So tell us, you now call yourself a reinvention architect. Tell us about that. So that was, it's got a little bit of an interesting story to it. So I landed a job out of prison, uh, working the front desk at a gym in the Lower East Side of Manhattan, making 12 bucks an hour, seven figures in, or, um, you know, I was over a million in debt. <laughs> um, you wow. know, but I was, I, it got me out of the halfway house. It was a great job. I got to meet people who are to this day, some of my best friends. And I share this because one of the members of the gym would come in in the middle of the day, you know, like weird times. And finally I asked her, I said, what do you do that you're in here all the time? And I knew she was successful, you know, from our conversations. And she said, well, I'm a, I'm a mindset coach and a business mentor. I said, that's really cool. What does that mean? <laughs> Because I, no, I had no idea. And she she explained it to me. And right then and there, I shared my entire story with her. She had no idea. I told her all about prison. I told her about suicide ideation. And I told her that I'm writing a book and I want to get on the speaking circuit. And I was still kind of stuck in corporate mode, you know, in my brain, because I didn't even know like coaching was a thing. And I told her I wanted to get into consulting. And she said, why don't you join me for a free call? see what you think about coaching, see if it's a match. And so I started working. I did that and it worked real. I loved it. I absolutely loved it. And I hired her. I had no money, but I saved. And it was one of the best investments I ever made. And I tell this story because as I'm doing the work with her, one of my friends was going through some stuff. She was trying to launch her own business. She was also dealing with, you know, a little bit of, you know, honestly, some mild depression and, you know, stresses in her own life. So I was taking the tools that I was learning from my coach and I was sharing them with my friend and they were working and she was making forward progress and she was so grateful. And when I'm at the gym working behind the front desk, people would come sit behind the desk with me. The trainers, you know, in between clients would share their woes with me and I would start sharing some, some of the tools and some of the things I was learning. And I really liked it. And all of a sudden, one day on one of my coaching sessions with her, I said, you know what? I want to be a coach. I don't want to consult. And she goes, I cannot tell you how fucking happy that makes me. She goes, <laughs> I couldn't. She said, I couldn't tell you that. She goes, I know you're going to be amazing. I couldn't tell you that. You had to come to it on your own. That is funny. And she goes, so what kind of coach do you want to be? I said, I have no idea. <laughs> she said, that's okay. Um, she goes, you know, I have an idea for you. I said, what? I think you should be a dating coach for women. She goes, I see how you are with the women in the gym and how much they trust you and your relationship with them. She's like, you're really, you're really great with women. You should, you know, look into that. And I said, no, that I don't like that. That doesn't feel good. She goes, before you poo poo on it, I want you to dive into that world. Here are two individuals. I'd like you to dive into their worlds, consume their content, and then tell me if you don't want to do it. And so I did that. I jumped into it. And I'll tell you what, this is all going to lead up to how I do what I do now. I felt like an imposter. It didn't feel right to me. And you know what? I did feel right when I was working in the corporate world. And I had been through way too much 
to not feel right. So I said, I don't want to feel like an imposter. What is something that I know better than anybody that will never, ever feel like an imposter doing? And I flashed to a conversation I had with a friend who one day just said to me, she looked at me and she said, you realize you've completely reinvented your life from scratch and it's pretty amazing. And I said, I know reinvention better than anybody. I know how to reinvent a life better than anybody knows how to. I will never feel like an imposter doing this. And so I started brainstorming with some fun things. And part of my rebuilding of my life, you notice I keep using the word rebuilding. I was using words in my journal like foundation. I need a strong foundation. I was using all these kind of construction terms, honestly. And so I started playing with that. And I said, reinvention what? Reinvention coach, reinvention this, reinvention architect. And that's how I came to to do what I do now. That is really cool. Thank you. Where, where, where you work with folks who are looking to start over, essentially, create a new career, create a new identity. So I work with two very distinct groups of people. I'm open to working with, you know, anybody who is curious about reinvention, but how it seems to have worked out just through the natural flow of life. Two distinct groups. One of them are people who have gone through the justice system. You know, people who were a CFO who can no longer be a CFO and who literally need to reinvent their lives. The other group of people that I work with are what I call pre-choice Craig. And what I mean by that is the Craig before I made the choice to commit fraud. So extremely successful, but without a sense of mission and meaning and fulfillment and doing work that didn't really it didn't light me up at all. I only liked the lifestyle it afforded me. I didn't like the work. Right. You know, right. and, you know, even before I was arrested, I was drinking a ton. You know, I was trying to fill that that hole inside of me with all of that status and prestige. I was not, I was not living a meaningful life. And so yeah. I work with people to connect with themselves on a deeper level to find out what really matters to them and to then take meaningful action towards its accomplishment. Cool. Yeah, it's really, it's one of the, it's, it's, it is so rewarding. Yeah. That's awesome. That's awesome. How do you find clients? I will do, um, it's, I'm on social media every single day. So, you know, I put up posts, people engage with the posts. We start having conversations. I offer a free call, um, to see, you know, so people can get an introduction to see what coaching is really like and to see if we're also a match, because that's extremely important. This relationship won't work if we're not a match. I'm not going right. to just take somebody on board for the money. That's not what this is about. It's got to be a good match. So it's through social media. It's through referrals. It's through um, my book. It's through my TED Talk. You know, people find me and in the strangest ways, which is, I think, just so yeah. cool about the world we live in now. Absolutely. So, you, you know, you mentioned TEDx speaker, you're a keynote speaker, uh, and you have a book, and we haven't talked about that at all. Your book, I believe it's called Blank Canvas, How I Reinvented My Life After Prison. Tell us about the book. That book is one of the greatest things I've ever done in my life. It started in the Otisville Federal Prison Library. I, I started writing it with, you know, those black and white composition notebooks. Remember those from school? Oh, yeah. Were, were yeah. you one of the people who would fill in all the white? I wouldn't say that. I, I was one of those. <laughs> I'd, fill in, I'd fill in all the other white. But I had, you know, I had that notebook and I had the, the Bic pen and I was started writing in prison. And then when I got to 
the halfway house, I had access to my phone. So I literally wrote probably about 100,000 words on my phone. Then when I went to the apartment, I was able to get my like 2012 iPad back from my now ex-wife. And so I'd prop that up on a book so it had a little better angle. And I wrote hundreds of thousands of words on that. Finally, I got to the point where I could afford a laptop and I started writing on the laptop. This thing took six years and it was the most brutal six years of my life. It was the most cathartic, challenging, painful process I've ever been through. And I would, I'm actually working on my second book now. (laughs) I I wouldn't give it up for anything. So that book's a memoir. It's your life. It is my memoir. It's it actually the, it starts with the voicemail from the FBI. That's the very wow. first thing in the book is the uh, the voicemail from the FBI and, okay. you know, all the way through, um, you know, the vision of my my suicide to Sean's visit to then all the things that I've done, you know, forgiveness, self-trust, um, you know, uh, the meditation, the journal and connecting with nature, you know, all of the all the different paths I've taken to reinvent my life, all, all awesome. done through memoir. And it was like I said, one of the hardest things I've ever done and the most rewarding things I've ever done. And people people can get that, I'm guessing, right off Amazon? Amazon and Barnes & Noble. Okay, awesome. Yeah. And, and tell us about the second book you're writing. The second book I'm writing is, so I've actually got two books kind of going simultaneously, which is not serving me too well, but my writing, I'm learning. <laughs> Something I learned from my first book is my writing process, um, for lack of a better term, sucks. I wrote about I wrote about a million plus words to get down to the fifty thousand that are in blank canvas. I just wow. word vomit, and it's because I I actually realized um, writing is how I think, and it allows me to do the work that I do with my clients, and it actually allows me to deliver the keynotes that I deliver. So writing right. is how I think. So I have kind of two books going on simultaneously. One of them is going to be like a reinvention toolkit. It is just looking at very specific exercises that I did while I was in prison and after prison and that I still do to this day that anybody can do in their life right now to help them reinvent their life, really to help them connect with a deeper level. So that's going to be a toolkit. The second one is I believe that the majority of us were given a blueprint to follow in life, go to a good school, get a good job, get a 401k, you know, have a family, move to the suburbs, all of the, th- all the shoulds, the supposed tos, the expectations, and we chase all of those. I believe that we're chasers for the first half of our life. And we chase and we chase and we chase, but that goalpost is always moving. And when we come to the midpoint of our lives, we start looking around saying, is this all there is? And we start thinking about a little bit of our mortality, starts knocking on our shoulders. And oftentimes what people end up doing is they end up chasing affairs, you know, Netflix, drinking, drugs, just to kind of quell that existential pain that they're feeling from not doing work that they're meant to do. And what we have to do is we have to evolve from a chaser of things to a creator of meaning. And so that's really going to be what the second book is, is the evolution from chaser to creator. Wow, that's awesome. Thank you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That is really cool. So um, if people want to reach out to you, 
What's the best way? You have a, a website, correct? I do. Craigstanlin.com is a great place to start. Uh, you get some information on me there. I've got a blog up on there. I'm on LinkedIn um, every day, and I'm on Instagram as well every day. Okay, awesome. I will make sure uh, to put those links in the show notes so people can reach out to you. And can they get to you right through your website as well? Absolutely. There is a Contact okay. Me Now page. Great. And that, again, was craigstanlin.com. I bet they can find the, your book there, although I know you said it's on Barnes & Noble and also Amazon. Correct. Yeah. Yep. Awesome. Awesome. So before we leave, Craig, I want to ask you something that I ask every guest on the show, and that is if there's somebody out there right now who's really struggling listening to this, um, you know, maybe they are having the same type of suicidal thoughts you had or the the um, feelings of not being uh, enough and so forth. What's your biggest piece of advice you'd give them? I'm going to go with there's two things. Number one, you're not alone. Always know that there is somebody who is there to listen, whether it be a friend, a family member, or a hotline. You are not alone. And I think that is so critically important. When we're on rock bottom, we tend to self-isolate. And that's the worst thing that we can do. So to know that you are not alone and to to share how you're feeling. And even if you have to share in a journal by yourself, that's a place to start. What's inside has to come out. Yeah. Is so critically important. And the second one that I think is important for people, and this might be a little bit more for when you're maybe a little out of the situation, but I think it even applies when you're in the situation of being at that rock bottom. It's just a reminder that our past cannot define us without mm. our consent. Yeah. Right. I love that. Well, Craig, I want to thank you for all the work you're doing and putting out such good energy and information and support to folks in the world. Um, and uh, through your book, your, your speaking, your coaching, it's, it's just amazing stuff that I'm sure is helping so, so many. And, uh, and I also want to thank you for taking the time to be on The Depression Files. Al, thank you so much for having me. This has been an absolute pleasure. And I want to acknowledge you. Um, I mentioned it earlier in the podcast, but it bears repeating that I want to acknowledge you for having this platform because these are the stories that need to be told because it ties exactly to knowing that we're not alone. Yeah, having these open conversations, having these challenging conversations allows somebody to say, wow, they're experiencing it too. That's one of the most powerful things. So thank you for having this platform. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you. Well, Craig, thanks again for your time and uh, make sure that you stay healthy. <laughs> thank you. You too. Thank you for listening to The Depression Files. If you've enjoyed the show, please subscribe and leave a rating and review. This is one small way that would help me out greatly. Please know that if you are currently suffering from depression and are experiencing thoughts of suicide, please reach out for help. In the U.S., you can call, text, or chat 988 to connect with a trained crisis counselor 
or you can visit suicide.org slash suicide dash hotlines for a list of international suicide hotlines. If you would like to connect directly with me or have a topic to suggest, please reach out to me on Twitter at allevin18 or email me at thedepressionfiles at gmail.com. Thank you again for listening to The Depression Files.